You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the CEO and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and we believe books provide us powerful information to help shape informed investors. In this podcast, we speak to great authors in their writings. The late, great Charlie Munger prescribed using multiple mental models and analysis. We analyze their work through the lens of business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode with me is our chief investment officer, my dad, Bill Smead. Thanks for joining me. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the podcast as well. We are going to study wars through the eyes of someone that has witnessed the complexity of the multi-factor world that we all live in. Joining us to discuss the recently released book that he co-authored titled Conflict is General David Petraeus. Though he needs no introduction, General Petraeus is a partner at KKR and chairman of KKR Global Institute. He is a board member of Optive and OneStream, a strategic advisor for Sempra and Advanced Navigation. General Petraeus served over 30 years in the U.S. military with six consecutive commands as a general officer, five of which were in combat. We will discuss many of those experiences in our discussion today. Following his retirement from the military, General Petraeus served as the director of the CIA. General Petraeus graduated with distinction from West Point. He also earned a PhD in international relations and academics from Princeton University. Outside of his many personal accolades, the one that jumped out to me was that while in uniform, he was blessed to throw a World Series first pitch and also do the coin toss at the Super Bowl. And I cannot say we've had someone like that before, General Petraeus. So that's a nice feather for you and for us. Thank you for joining us. Good to be with you, Cole. Thank you. Great to be with Speed. To start us off, we, we love asking authors this. What inspired you to write this book? You know, what brought you to this point to say, you want to flesh this out on paper? Uh, Andrew Roberts, my co-author. Uh, one of the great biographers and historians of our time. Uh, this was his 20th book. It's the first for which he had a co-author, and he called me up after the Russians invaded Ukraine and said there needed to be a book that provided the military historical context for the invasion of Ukraine. I had been looking for an opportunity to write about the two wars that I commanded, Iraq and Afghanistan, without doing it in some kind of tell-all memoir approach. And also to revisit Vietnam, which was the subject of my PhD dissertation. Uh, he knew that. We know each other very well. We've done a lot of events together in the past. And so when he asked if I'd be willing to do that, I jumped at the opportunity. And it proved to be a, a wonderful experience to work with him. I, I should note I've been a speechwriter in the past. I was a speechwriter for the NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe. I largely did that for the chief staff of the Army and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and positions I held for them directly uh, as well. And as I noted, I did a dissertation. So, but I've always enjoyed writing with other people. I had a lot of speechwriters over the years and particularly in the three and four star assignments and then as the director of the CIA. So it was wonderful to do that with someone who is really the very best in the business when it comes to history and, and biographer. Great. Let's I start off by talking about the four major tasks that all leaders need to execute. Well, we highlight the importance of strategic leadership in the introduction of the book, because as we went through the various conflicts, these different chapters about the post-World War II period, what kept jumping out at us was the critical component of strategic leadership. That's the leader at the very top, the president of the United States, and then it becomes the battlefield commander, the commander of a theater of war. And the strategic leader has to perform four tasks superbly if his side is to prevail. You have to understand the nature of the conflict. You have to understand your forces, the enemy forces, the physical terrain, the human terrain, the neighborhood, the society in which this will be conducted, uh, and then craft the right strategy. You have to get the big ideas right you then have to communicate the big ideas effectively throughout the breadth and depth of the organization to everyone who has a stake in the outcome of the conflict. You have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. That's the third task. This is the example that the leader provides, the inspiration, the energy, attracting great people, keeping them as long as you can, allowing those not measuring up to move on to something else, 
the metrics that tell you whether you're winning or losing, and how the leader spends his or her time is also crucial, the battle rhythm as we used to call it. And then the fourth task of a strategic leader is to formally sit down and determine how the big ideas need to be refined, how the strategy needs to evolve as the situation evolves uh, so that you can perform those four tasks again and again and again. Now, all leaders actually perform these four tasks in the conduct of leadership, but they do so below, if they're below the strategic leader, as all but one person inevitably is the strategic leader, they are performing these four tasks within the the intent that confines the decisions of the strategic leader who has made the basic decisions about the big ideas, the strategy that is to be pursued. And in the course of the book, we lay out, we describe cases in which the strategic leaders did not get the big ideas right, sometimes for quite a long period of time, sometimes not at all. Uh, and then other cases where leaders got them right and then they were invalidated. You had to get new big ideas, such as the case with the surge in Iraq, or where it took a very long time to get it right, say nine years into Afghanistan before we got the inputs right in terms of the right big ideas, the right organizational architecture, the right level of military, civilian, diplomats, spies, development workers, and others, uh, resources, the right leaders, the right preparation of our forces, et cetera. So again, the importance of strategic leadership cannot really be emphasized sufficiently. It is crucial. And if it is present, if there is solid strategic leadership, then that side has a very good chance of prevailing. If there is not, then that effort is unlikely to succeed. I, I really enjoyed your book uh, with Mr. Roberts because I just got the strong sense out of what you're talking about, what you wrote about. You're a student of history. And I and, and we time and time again, just absolutely love studying history because it's a liberal art. It it has to be studied in multi-factor ways. And I think one of the things you touched on that I don't think most generations, you know, I'm your classic millennial, uh, General Petraeus, right? I was born in 1980. So, you know, reading about the post-World War II psyche that you touched on in your book, I'd love you to talk about this. And I'm going to use a quote out of the book, but I'd love you to comment more on it. Uh, quote, in light of this, the overriding U.S. strategy became one of deterrence, what Kissinger would describe, quote, a psychological strategy of negative objectives, end quote. Teach our audience about that mood at the end of World War II. Well, World War II, of course, was brought to a close with the employment of weapons that had never been used before. Nuclear weapons was actually the atomic bomb, not yet the so fusion, not fission yet. And then in the wake of World War II, even more destructive weapons were developed with ever greater yield. The power of the nuclear weapons uh, was increased very substantially. And there was a recognition that these should never be employed. Their value was to deter the other side from using similar weapons. Now, unfortunately, the presence of these in the arsenals of first the two superpowers at that time, the U.S. and Soviet Union, and then other countries around the world, did not prevent conflict in general. In fact, it didn't even prevent conflict pursued by countries that had nuclear weapons. But what it did mean was that all wars since then, until now at least, have been limited in the sense that the ultimate weapon has not been used. Sure. Arguably, it has helped, again, to deter great power wars, but you cannot assume that's going to be the case going forward. Certainly, the elements of deterrence are very, very important when it comes to, for example, ensuring that what is described as a severe competition, the relationship between the U.S., the West, and China, not become true confrontation, because that would be too, too catastrophic for all involved. And we should be clear that the elements of deterrence are the potential adversary's assessment of your capabilities on the one hand, and your willingness to employ them on the other. We have to be very clear that there should be no doubt about either of those components of deterrence. And indeed, we are working very hard in the Indo-Pacific theater, for example, to transform our forces, to modernize them in a variety of different ways, 
to harden our bases, to disperse our forces, to improve their defenses, to take headquarters underground, et cetera, et cetera, to reduce the vulnerability, uh, and also to ensure that our capabilities are sustained in ways that uh, would never tempt a potential adversary to pursue some kind of offensive operation uh, that would be very, very destructive. To follow on that, um, you talk about the Chinese Civil War as a good proxy for the post-World War II era. All of learning, I would argue, is pattern recognition. It's analogous situations that we learn from. And I think your book really builds on that idea of pattern recognition. Can you explain how the Chinese Civil War was a good example of proxy warfare? Well, it was essentially a civil war between a communist uh, element uh, led by Mao Zedong against the so-called nationalist elements, those that we had supported uh, during World War II of Chiang Kai-shek. And essentially, Mao Zedong turned out to be a much better strategic leader than was uh, Chiang Kai-shek. He got the big ideas right. Chiang Kai-shek did not. Uh, and the result was victory for the communist side and the, the forces of Chiang Kai-shek having to withdraw to what is now Taiwan. The strategy pursued was one that would later be copied in many respects uh, by the communist forces in Vietnam against the French, then the North Vietnamese uh, forces and Viet Cong in the South against uh, the U.S. and South Vietnamese forces, uh, and in a variety of other uh, countries around the world. In fact, it would become known as, if you will, as a Maoist insurgency with certain characteristics that were uh, studied and employed by other forces around the world, not always implemented successfully, but with elements that, as you say, their pattern recognition is quite important. And in fact, when we drafted the counterinsurgency field manual between my three and four-star tours in Iraq, we revisited that episode and, and of course, many of the other insurgencies that took place uh, in the wake of World War II uh, and, in, and in recent decades. And in many cases, these wars among the people or regular warfare insurgencies had very similar components to them, uh, albeit with differences, as one would imagine, some of them more nationalistic than others, uh, some about Islamist extremism as we confronted in Iraq and to a degree in Afghanistan and so forth. Korea kind of highlights some of the big disadvantages we have in a war against authoritarian regimes. Explain how Kim Il-sung took advantage of this in the Korean War. Well, authoritarians are not worried about getting reelected. Um, so, <laughs> so, I mean, they can be deposed and they do have to be concerned about that. But by and large, the authorities that, that authoritarians have are quite enormous compared with those of uh, leaders of democracies. And so leaders of democracies have to be much more concerned about casualties uh, in one's forces, costs imposed on society, etc., whereas authoritarian leaders can be much less concerned with that, uh, can employ essentially human wave attacks. Again, aren't worried that they won't be renominated for uh, leadership or win the next election. Now, over time, uh, democracies can respond very impressively, uh, and that has been proven uh, time and again. But what you saw in the Korean War, once again, highlighted the importance of strategic leadership. In particular, that General MacArthur, who, uh, first of all, he and his forces were surprised by the North, uh, almost driven off the Korean Peninsula. Then the U.S. galvanized its response. President Truman decided that this would not be allowed to, to happen, rushed reinforcements and additional capabilities uh, to the Korean, Korean Peninsula. MacArthur employed a great big idea, which was the amphibious uh, assault, the Incheon uh, landing to cut off uh, North Korean forces, but then succumbed to a really bad big idea, which was that we could continue to push our forces all the way up to the Yalu River and the Chinese would not enter the war. Uh, that was flawed. 
they did enter the war, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them transformed that particular conflict, almost drove us off the Korean Peninsula again. MacArthur eventually gets crosswise with President Truman, starts tossing around the possibility of use of nuclear weapons, really quite insubordinate kinds of behavior, if you will. Uh, he's replaced by General Ridgway, who turns out to be a brilliant strategic leader, having already been a brilliant battlefield commander as the commander of the 82nd Airborne Division in World War II, quite a battlefield hero as well. And provides exactly the strategic leadership necessary to get back to essentially the lines between South and North that prevailed before the uh, North Korean invasion and eventually establish a demilitarized zone roughly along the 38th parallel. So not the kind of decisive victory that MacArthur had sought, but a more than acceptable outcome in the end, and an outcome that has proven to be quite durable ever since, even though North Korea remains a very problematic uh, hermit kingdom in which the authoritarian power of the now the grandson of Kim Il-sung is very substantial to the point that, again, the people are starving, but they are producing nuclear weapons. So, Again, another country that would be characterized as a revolutionary state, not satisfied with the status quo, but one against which the Republic of Korea, South Korea, together with the U.S. and other uh, allied powers, have provided quite a substantial deterrence uh, and have sustained uh, an outcome that has been quite impressive, especially when you look at the South Korean uh, economic achievements in contrast to those of, of North Korea. Two small things, and I, I don't think we should spend a lot of time on this, but I, these are very interesting. I mean, like we love reading financial statements. So this was like a footnote in my mind, General Petraeus, where these were interesting tidbits. You kind of put some crumbs behind for your readers. And this never happened again in the military after this. Can you teach our listeners where MacArthur was leading from in this conflict, right? Where he was physically located, which obviously we would never do again. Well, by and large, he was located in Tokyo, in the, actually the Daiichi building. It's a famous building there. And, and, and of course, he, he oversaw this extraordinary island hopping campaign uh, after getting driven off the Philippines and vowed that he would return. Um, and he was taken to Australia in a, several uh, high-speed boats and then rebuilt the forces for his particular part of the Pacific campaign, oversaw a masterful uh, execution of this island hopping campaign that culminated with the Japanese surrender. Uh, and he was then put in charge of essentially of Japan uh, in the wake of World War II and oversaw the reconstruction of the Japanese state a revered figure uh, in Japan. And in fact, when he would go to work each morning, people would line up to see the great general, of course, a five-star general by then. But uh, he largely commanded from Japan and he rarely visited uh, Korea, certainly didn't spend time on the front lines, uh, flew over it several times. Whereas Ridgway, uh, again, in part because he took over as the commander of the army in Korea, and then replaced uh, MacArthur, but had a much better feel for the battlefield, a much better example on the battlefield, even wearing two grenades in his uh, load-bearing equipment, just as a symbol of the offensive spirit that he intended to imbue in the, in the force. Quite an extraordinary <laughs> leader. In fact, there's a book by a Stanford professor, it's titled Savior Generals, Rightly, uh, Ridgway is a savior general, uh, so is Grant. So I might add somewhat humbly, uh, he selected me for the surge in Iraq as well. This show is brought to you by Smee Capital Management. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. You know, we work hard putting together this show, but we work even harder for our investors at Smee Capital Management. At Smead, we believe in disciplined investing, which is why the Smead funds have a proven track record of long-term outperformance. If you're an investor who fears stock market failure and want to invest in wonderful companies to build wealth, we invite you to visit smeadcap.com. 
Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please refer to the prospectus for important information about the investment company, including objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Read and consider it carefully before investing. Smeet funds distributed by UMB Distribution Services, LLC, not affiliated. Cole's grandfather, my dad, served on the USS Boston as a gunnery mate and was part of the uh, security forces in the six months after in Tokyo on the ground. Really a seminal and important in his life. Ended up being a, a ship pilot after all that. So I can totally relate to what you're talking about there. The, the other thing, General Petraeus, that this meeting with MacArthur and Truman, this had to be incredible. I'd love to be a fly on the, the wall. wall in that yeah. room. Can you explain how uncomfortable that was? Because I, I think it's just a very... It shows you the greatness to a democracy where you have a conflict like that. That's a great, it's a, I argue that's a first world problem for us to have in America. Well, it was an intriguing meeting and there have been many, many accounts. There were several different transcriptions of it. There were individual accounts of those that were all present. Some of the mythology that MacArthur was disrespectful or something like that really has not borne out. But First of all, Truman had to fly all the way out to the Pacific to, to yeah. <laughs> come back. Uh, MacArthur did keep him waiting on the tarmac, et cetera, and then declined the opportunity to have lunch with him, claiming that he had to get back uh, to the headquarters or something. Again, MacArthur was a man of no small ego, and this was part of the challenge uh, for him as a strategic leader that I always felt that you should surround yourself with people who are willing to tell you when your big ideas are perhaps as persuasive or impressive as you might think they are. The guy that can tell the emperor that he's not fully clothed, this kind of thing. And for the surge in Iraq, for example, I took back to Iraq with me a number of individuals who had challenged the thinking along the way. I mean, there's one that early on a full colonel a military intelligence officer who had said correctly that we are now facing an insurgency in the early months after the invasion and toppling of the government, which that was not particularly popular assessment. And he was literally sent home because of it. And I brought him back with me. There was another younger officer, very smart guy with PhD who had criticized our generals for being intellectually flaccid or something like this. Uh, again, you want these kind of individuals around you and you want a culture created in which people can actually respectfully debate with the strategic leader. I'm not sure that culture existed around MacArthur at that point in his life. Kashmir sets the stage for understanding future hyper-localized conflicts. Explain to our audience how little has changed in 80 years of fighting in the hills of Pakistan. Well, what you have are essentially the residual effects of the uh, separation of India and Pakistan mm -hmm. and these disputed areas that are not agreed. Each side controls a portion uh, of Kashmir. The resolution of this is still incomplete, but it's very clear who is in charge of each of these. And yet uh, the Pakistanis in particular have uh, sought to remedy what they see as inadequate division of this area uh, and the Indians have had to respond from time to time having originally established uh, what it was that they controlled. This has solidified a bit more uh, in recent years. The Indian part has been incorporated more fully into the, uh, the Indian state in ways that there's some dispute actually in the Indian Supreme Court, but I think will be resolved. But you have these kinds of situations around the world where there is not agreement between the two parties to a conflict, but there are facts on the ground. Uh, you see this to a degree as well in the so-called line of actual control between India and China. Again, there's no agreement on that border, but there is a line of, quote, actual control. And one side controls one side and the other side controls the other side every now and then. There is violence, and we've seen three episodes of that in recent years between the Chinese and the Indians uh, that resulted in dozens of deaths, especially on the Indian side. But those are just parts of the global landscape these days. 
but they can continue to be flashpoints. And Kashmir has certainly been one of those over the decades. Teach our listeners about the four R's that help us understand terrorists and were present in Kashmir. The four R's uh, that we lay out in the book, uh, renown, revenge, reaction, and frankly, above all, religion, these still animate differences between different individual groups, uh, different societies, and so forth. And we see the element of religion still very much present. We've seen literally sectarian civil wars play out. In fact, by the time that we began the conduct of the surge in Iraq, there was a full-blown Sunni-Shia sectarian civil war underway. Right. Right. And you have to recognize that component of that particular conflict. In fact, part of the the big ideas that galvanized that and the surge that mattered most was the surge of ideas, even more than the surge of forces, which are very important in enabling us to implement the big ideas more rapidly. And that was crucial because congressional support was beginning to wane. In recognizing the importance of the sectarian component of the violence, we would literally put our forces right between the Sunni and Shia. We had hotspot maps that that helped us to identify where the sectarian violence was the greatest. Mm -hmm. And that's where we would deploy our forces. We recognized that we had to go back into the neighborhoods. For the previous year and a half, two years, we'd been withdrawing from the neighborhoods, consolidating on big bases and preparing to draw down. And instead... We had to go back into the neighborhoods, take back control of security from the Iraqi security forces, which had been beaten up very badly, and then stabilize these areas uh, in which this sectarian violence is playing out. So religion is a very, very significant motivating factor that we've continued to contend with ever since uh, the advent of religion, frankly, if you think about it. And this is maybe the beginning of the security issue that you hammer away at later in the book, that creating security for the citizenry is a... Yeah, few- we'll, we'll discuss that more because that's yeah. been that, the other, your oil spot approach. We'll touch on that. One thing I want to touch on, because we're kind of hopping through this chronologically, back to surviving. The easiest way to do this is to study all the conflicts in your book about Israel. Um, I find all your discussion on this to be so valuable, particularly right now. Israel was born in conflict, as you lay out uh, from the beginning. Talk about Israel's opening act in May 1948. Well, Israel's under pressure from all sides. It has to solidify control over the new uh, state of Israel. Mm -hmm. It has to fight repeatedly uh, over the years uh, against forces that are trying to take its territory away from them. And eventually, over the course of this, Uh, We lay out the wars uh, that include, in particular, the Yom Kippur War, the War of 67. Many of the early wars were started by countries around Israel. And inevitably, after very fraught moments for Israel, Israel prevails. And this is, of course, in the course of these wars, uh, they take control of what is known as the West Bank, later on the Golan Heights, the Sinai, which they eventually give back to to Egypt. But they, as you note, were born in conflict. They had to establish their military forces. Uh, They were challenged repeatedly by coalitions of Arab countries, Mm -hmm. by Egypt, Jordan, Syria, uh, and then forces out of Lebanon at various times. And they have solidified their security uh, over the years, although, as we have seen very recently, and the chapter we'll have to add will be one that it begins with the horrific Hamas attack mm-hmm. on the 7th of October, what carried out uh, truly barbaric, unspeakable actions uh, against the uh, Israeli civilians and others. Uh, and even videoed them and uploaded them, inflaming the situation even more. Vietnam was a forever decolonization in many respects, but as you point out, was more about nationalism. It wasn't necessarily the political structure. 
Could you explain this for us? Well, the Vietnamese communists were, in fact, fighting against the colonial master China and then seeking to unite all of Vietnam. Uh, there's no question about the communist element of those forces uh, of Ho Chi Minh, but there was also a greater component of nationalism present than we probably recognized at the time. But we should keep in mind, of course, that we actually fought with Ho Chi Minh uh, in World War II uh, against the Japanese. The French first, of course, had a catastrophic end to their effort to reassert control over uh, their former yeah. French colonial territory in uh, Indochina. Uh, when they established a huge base at Dien Bien Phu, they were frustrated the guerrillas wouldn't come to fight. The, the Viet Minh, the communist forces, were <laughs> very elusive guerrilla uh, tactics. So they created this huge base at Dien Bien Phu, trying to attract them, their enemy, to come to battle. They did <laughs> more than come to battle. It was a terribly bad, big idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and they ultimately were defeated, had to surrender, went into captivity. Vietnam was partitioned into North and South. The U.S. entered as supporter of the South. And then the U.S. just didn't quite understand the nature of the war adequately. Uh, South Vietnamese leaders asked for U.S. assistance in dealing with challenges in the villages and hamlets that were essentially, again, guerrilla or insurgent-like activity of what would become known as the Viet Cong. And the U.S. said, no, you know, we're fresh from the battlefields of Korea. You need to be worried about an invasion across the demilitarized zone between North and South, such as we experienced in the Korean Peninsula. And so we're going to help you build divisions. That's what you need is major units that look like ours. And we helped them build nine divisions, uh, each of them of some roughly 10 to 15,000 troops for large operations, not ideal for the actual security in the villages and hamlets that was uh, eroding the South Vietnamese control of their country. We later brought in large U.S. units, divisions, and we pursued a strategy of attrition and uh, search and destroy tactics uh, that was not the proper approach. This is not to say you don't need to go out and find and kill the enemy in this kind right. of endeavor you do. But the focus should have been on securing the people again in the villages and hamlets in a very joined up comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign rather than the big war uh, that we fought. Uh, and it wasn't until 1968 that General Abrams took over uh, when you actually pulled all of this together uh, the U.S., the other coalition elements, and the uh, South Vietnamese forces, and did focus on security of the villages and hamlets, but still had residual uh, elements of the larger war, uh, and actually did achieve uh, quite considerable progress. But of course, by the by that time, in the wake of the Tet Offensive uh, in early 1968 in which North Vietnamese forces and the Viet Cong in the South all tried to take down the U.S. and, and Southern forces. It was such a surprise and so unexpected after there had been briefings that the light was seen at the end of the tunnel and so forth, that we were making great progress, that although that tech was a major defeat, for the Viet Cong and for the North Vietnamese forces, the erosion of popular support in the U.S. that resulted made it very difficult to continue the kind of campaign that was actually necessary. Yeah. Well, now our next question, I'll touch on that. Yeah. So in 1968, I was 10 years old, but I was reading a lot of newspapers already. And Cole and I have been to... Uh, we've been to the museum we, we've in been, Minh. Yeah, we've been to uh, uh, North and South Vietnam and uh, Hanoi speaking to CFA societies back in 2011. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard for someone like Cole at his age to understand how fearful everyone was of communism literally taking over the world in the same kind of way that Hitler tried to take over for Nazism. 
So could you flush that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, the the operative theory at the time was a domino theory uh, that these countries were a set of dominoes and that the communists might topple them again like dominoes and communism would take over all of Southeast Asia. One can argue, and Henry Kissinger and a number of others do, that by supporting South Vietnam, even though it eventually did succumb to the invasion of the North, after we had withdrawn our forces and then Congress limited what we were able to do to support them, that nonetheless, that support did enable a number of other countries in the area uh, to survive and to prosper uh, and not be taken over by the communists, uh, although certainly several of those in Southeast Asia were. This theory was uh, generally embraced in the United States, uh, and it was one that did prompt our support uh, for South Vietnam uh, for a very long period of time in what is arguably the longest war that we've had. There's a debate about whether there was that or Afghanistan, depending yeah. on where to start the stopwatch in Vietnam, and one that was also very costly, obviously. That's a great lead in to uh, Ken Burns' a documentary on Vietnam. Uh, I enjoyed immensely. And one of the things I enjoyed the most was Senator Kennedy in the late 50s went to Vietnam on a fact-finding mission and came back and told his close advisors, boy, if I'm ever president, I won't get involved in that thing. And then Johnson, when he was vice president, told his advisors, boy, if I become president, I'm not getting involved in that thing. So so how did these men that were wise, they, they were wise, they recognized the incredible difficulty associated there and and, and both thought it was an unwinnable war. Take us through that. How that how that developed that way that took it out of their hands? Well, it wasn't taken out of their hands. Uh, they made the decisions to increase our involvement incrementally uh, and then very substantially when it came to uh, President Johnson's time in office. Sure. Uh, but even when President Kennedy was assassinated, there were already well over 10,000 advisors and quite substantial uh, U.S. capabilities on the ground in Vietnam. The bottom line is that neither of those presidents nor their successor wanted to lose Vietnam, and they kept having to incrementally provide more forces to prevent that from happening. So for all of their protestations of explanations of what they might do, were they to become the president? Things look a little bit different when you're sitting at the head of the table in the White House situation <laughs> yeah. uh, than when you're outside uh, second-guessing yeah. what goes on inside it. And having sat at the Situation Room table, I can tell you that you do feel different when you're at that table uh, than when you're in a somewhat more detached mode uh, outside. To not lose is not a very good goal, is it? Yeah, well, and, and to uh, leave with honor uh, is, is an even tougher task, I would say. The other thing, and I, again, to hit back at this idea, because again, the great part about being in a you know democracy where the individual has liberties and freedoms is that, again, we have to debate those processes and, and what we're going to do as a country and a people group. So the problem, obviously, you know, is that the North Vietnamese didn't have to go announce to everybody what they were intending to do and make it popular. We had to do that, particularly in the latest stages of Vietnam, especially when it was very against the will of the public sentiment. How tough was that for the commanders in Vietnam when everyone knows what they have to do in the end? Well, first and foremost, I think we should recognize that the U.S. supported that war and the U.S. public supported the war. Sure very solidly uh, up through probably the Tet Offensive, I think was a real milestone of a watershed that did erode public support. So there was very substantial commitment of resources and it was really that we did not get the strategy right more than anything else. Uh, And I think the public started to realize that that was the case. Uh, we were not winning the war uh, in their eyes. Tet basically punctured the the notion 
that General Westmoreland had been propagating that we we're making a solid progress. And, and again, there's light at the end of the tunnel. So again, you, you can't fool the American public overly long. Sure. What are, one of the critical elements of the surge was to demonstrate, not just to the American public, but to the Iraqi public and the publics of our other coalition countries, that we actually could pull a country out of a civil war. We could get them on a path to a better future. We could drive down the violence very, very substantially. In other words, that we actually had the right big ideas. And I think that the American public in the case of Vietnam started to recognize that we didn't have the right big ideas. And it's just tragic that those who were actually commanding our forces on the battlefield, uh, successive commanders, did not get the strategy right. And it was not right until, again, 13 years into the war, by which time public support had begun to erode so substantially that it was not going to be sustainable. Sure. I would contrast that, by the way, with Afghanistan, which at the end um, certainly was not what we hoped it would be. Uh, it was unsatisfactory. It was maddening. It was frustrating. Our partner, local partners were very imperfect, et cetera. But that particular situation was sustainable in a way that Vietnam was not. We could have sustained 3,500 troops in Afghanistan forever, uh, especially because we hadn't lost a soldier in combat in a year and a half prior to the terrible suicide bombing at the uh, airfield during the evacuation. Uh, and even though the situation was not, again, what we hoped it would be, um, it was far better than what one could anticipate if the Taliban were able to take over, which they did. And I think the outcome is actually not just heartbreaking, uh, but actually disastrous. And it didn't have to be that way. I want to give a big shout out to everyone who's listening to the show. You know, we recently hit the top 10 in investing podcasts on Apple Podcasts and even number one in the business category in several countries. As you may know, this show is brought to you by Smead Capital Management. Smead understands how frustrating and illogical the stock market can be. If you are searching for funds with a proven track record, give the Smead funds a look. Or better yet, reach out at smeadcap.com. And don't forget to mention you're a fan of the podcast. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please refer to the prospectus for important information about the investment company, including objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Read and consider it carefully before investing. Smeet funds distributed by UMB Distribution Services, LLC, not affiliated. You know, I was getting out of college in 06, so I got to see the upfront, far left view of, you know, students, you know, in, in these conflicts we're discussing in the last 25 years. And the idea, to your point just a second ago, that Afghanistan on a human, you know, loss basis for the U.S. military is anywhere close to prior conflict is just a farce. It's just impossibly a lie. And I, but one thing I want to touch on that, because again, this was an issue in Vietnam that, you know, again, this is things the military has learned since then. Can you explain the typical tour for a U.S. soldier and why that was so problematic in Vietnam? Well, in Vietnam, first of all, we fought it with a drafty army. So the soldier is uh, called up, drafted, uh, joins, goes to basic training, and pretty quickly ends up in the jungles of Vietnam. And it's a, a year if the individual survives it, then goes home, and then fairly quickly is, is probably going to be uh, mustered out. But beyond that, the, the commission officers would only spend six months in actual leadership position, command, mm -hmm. and would rotate to some staff assignment during their year in country. And because of this constant personnel rotation, the critical elements of small unit cohesion and training and so forth are just not present. We originally deployed the big units starting in 1965. And for that first year, you had the benefit of units that had trained together, that had deployed together, uh, were serving together, and generally went home together. But then you begin individual replacement, uh, as opposed to what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, which is unit replacement. We'd go for 12 to 15 months during the surge, it was 15. So again, this constant rotation 
and it meant that you just aren't, aren't learning the way that you should either. And then again, the fact that the commander, I mean, they just really start to understand the, the battlefield, the context, the human terrain, and they're rotated. Surprises shouldn't be surprising, as we saw with the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Uh, despite this being true, can you talk about the punch through that Israel executed in that conflict? Because, I mean, what I read from your book, it seems like the most impressive military strategy you've almost ever seen. Well, the Israeli recovery uh, mm -hmm. from the surprise by the Egyptians in 73 was very, very considerable, but also on the other fronts of the war as well, including on the Golan, which is a very close run affair uh, with the Syrians and also uh, with the Jordanian forces. The Egyptians were able to penetrate deep into the Sinai, which, of course, the uh, Israelis had seized in the 67 war, achieving very considerable surprise, uh, despite actually signs of a buildup that were picked up by some of the Israeli intelligence officials. And this was actually a, a near existential threat at one point in time, had the Egyptians been able to exploit the success that they achieved with their surprise attack across the Suez, uh, but they were unable to do so. The Israeli reserves uh, were all called up. Uh, they responded very swiftly. And then Ariel Sharon in particular with armored forces mounted a very impressive counterattack through the Sinai and literally was on the road to Cairo uh, when a ceasefire was brokered by Henry Kissinger, who was able to work with uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, Golda Meir, and uh, the Egyptian President, Anwar Sadat. Ultimately, of course, this led to actual peace agreement between Israel and Egypt, with uh, the Sinai going back largely under Egyptian control, although there's still a multinational force uh, in one portion of it. The Israelis also responded incredibly courageously in the Golan Heights, uh, again, the Syrians very close to taking control of that uh, and the Israelis counterattacking there as well and with extraordinary individual initiative uh, and bravery on the battlefield were able to solidify their control of the Golan Heights. But quite, a, quite an extraordinary moment uh, in response to a very significant reverse at the outset of that, that campaign. The Iran-Iraq war serves as a stark counter-argument to this theory, as it was less reminiscent of the Second World War than of the first, is a quote from, from the book. Is this the ideology that causes surprises, the recency and anchoring biases that we have to believe we won't go back to evil, what we do, and can we see current examples of that with Russia? Yeah, the idea that, you know, we're evolving and we're not going to go back to the past evils, but it seems, General Petraeus, that we run into these evils more regularly than we'd like to think. Well, we do. And we see in certainly the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year mm -hmm. uh, that the revisionist, revanchist uh, view of history by a grievance-filled uh, leader, uh, autocrat, kleptocrat, Vladimir Putin, is still present uh, in today's day and age uh, and galvanized the invasion uh, of a neighboring country that Putin believes doesn't have a right to exist. Again, clearly the kinds of malevolent ideas uh, and mindset uh, that led to the Iran-Iraq war and to some of the other wars that we recount in conflict, uh, those still do exist tragically, and we still have to be on guard against them. And of course, the war in Ukraine is by no means over it is a bit of a stalemate right now, to be sure. Uh, but Ukraine is under enormous pressure from a country that is, has more than three times its population and an economy that's nine or ten times its size as well. I want to hit a bigger picture idea, kind of a framework thought that I took away from this book. And I think uh, I ran into it the most poignantly in the second Gulf War. We obviously toppled Hussein very quickly and the government fell apart. 
were we running into stigmas of Vietnam when it came to hold and build? I know you pointed out Rumsfeld did not want to commit a lot of troops to that process. And I guess is the danger for us is that we know we have great technologies and processes and systems to topple governments, but we might not actually want to solve the inherent problem in those geographies. Is that a fair question to ask? Well, the challenge in the wake of the invasion of Iraq, and as you noted, the rapid toppling of Saddam Hussein and his regime, was that we had inadequate plans for the post-conflict phase. In fact, not only did they prove inadequate, we made some seriously bad decisions, some seriously bad big ideas, such as firing the Iraqi military without telling them how they're going to provide for their families. Yeah. After that, and then firing the Iraqi Ba'ath Party down to the level of the bureaucrats, most of them Western educated, we actually needed to help run a country that we didn't understand sufficiently. I'm sure that created no enemies. <laughs> it created hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. <laughs> incentive was to oppose the new Iraq rather than to support it. And that violates the, the precepts of, in fact, I always had a sign on the wall of my operations centers and in my two, three, four-star commands that asked, will this operation take more bad guys off the street than it creates by its conduct? Sure. If the answer to that is no, in other words, it'll create more bad guys than it takes off the street, you're not supposed to do it. Sure. Uh, the case of those two policies uh, violated that in massive terms. Yeah. So again, we had inadequate plans, uh, and then we created a one-off organization, the Coalition Provisional Authority, instead of just establishing an embassy, we used other ad hoc organizations instead of existing organizations. And that made that first 18 months in Iraq much more challenging and difficult than they needed to have been. Uh, we then did establish an embassy. We then got our organizational architecture right for uh, the military forces. We crafted a strategy and approach that was sound until it was invalidated in 2006 by a catastrophic event, the bombing by the Sunni extremists, Al-Qaeda, uh, of a Shia shrine in a Sunni-dominated area that set off a cycle of sectarian violence that resulted in Iraq being in an essential Sunni-Shia civil war uh, by the end of 2006, which necessitated the de decision by President Bush uh, to conduct a surge of forces I uh, selected a new commander and ambassador, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, the best diplomat any soldier ever had as a partner. Uh, and, and of course, I was the commander and then empowered us to carry out a comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign, clear, hold and build uh, the so-called oil spot uh, theory, where you clear an area, you hold it and then you clear further, you expand the oil or ink spot, you rebuild it. And then over time, you also uh, rebuild the institutions, the uh, local institutions and security forces and gradually transition. You thin out, you don't just hand off. Uh, and that process just continues around the country. We can't leave without allowing you to touch on Ukraine. You eloquently explained how quickly Putin thought he would win the conflict. There are rumblings on both sides of the aisle already about the spending there. And I, and I was watching Wilbur Ross speak at a conference in Miami a few weeks ago here. And he was pointing out how Ukraine as a spending category is, you know, obviously small on the overall deficit, let alone the budget of the United States of America. And so, you know, we're, we're watching this. And I guess a big picture question is, does Putin have a timeline that Ukraine and the United States does not have on this subject? Well, it depends. It depends on the U.S. Congress, in which there is very strong bipartisan support in both houses mm -hmm. or continued support for Ukraine. But because of the composition of the majority in the House of Representatives, a very small number of individuals can prevent this from going through. Sure. But you're correct. Um, Wilbur Ross is correct. $44 billion over two years for the United States in security assistance. This is a fraction of the two-year defense budget, much less the entire budget. The two-year <laughs> defense budget yeah, yeah. would be, you know, some $1.7 trillion. 
So this is more than affordable for the United States. And the return on that investment and the European investment, they've now actually pledged even more than and we have pledged at this point in time, uh, has been extraordinary. 60% of the Russian tank fleet has been destroyed, dramatically reducing the threat to the NATO of the Russians. In fact, the Russians have had to thin out or remove their forces from a number of other places around the world, uh, including uh, in the areas where there are Russia borders with NATO countries. Beyond that, this is clearly a case that cannot be allowed to stand. Uh, the, the redrawing of borders by force is something that Europe hasn't seen since the end of World War II. And it needs to be, Ukraine deserves the support of democracies around the world, however imperfect its own democracy may be, as it is fighting a very common enemy uh, in the case of the NATO alliance countries. So there's a lot that we didn't discuss. Uh, just to go through some of the things that readers should want to dig into, and I'll throw out some some ideas that that General Petraeus, if you disagree with, you can just tell me straight up. Abu Ghraib was un-American, just like Algiers was un-French, was a great picture I got out of your book as an example. There's so many others, The you know, the discussion of the Balkans in the early 90s as well as in the later 90s. You know, there's just, there's such great things. Uh, among the things we discussed, is, is there, you know, is there maybe one last thing that you think we missed or we didn't discuss yet that you think is a very, uh, you know, highlight of of your and Mr. Roberts' work? Well, in addition to the critical importance of strategic leadership is also a recognition that what happens in one part of the world reverberates in other parts. Sure. And the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the way it was conducted, what, that was seized on by President Xi, who said, see, you can't count on the Americans. They are undependable allies. And look at how it was conducted. Uh, they're a great power in decline. I think, in fact, that Putin probably looked at Afghanistan, and that was one of the factors that led him to believe that he could do what he did in Ukraine without the kind of response that we have actually seen. The U.S. actually led, I think, very a very effective response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It kept NATO united, didn't allow Russia to drive a wedge between North America and Europe. And in fact, um, I think it's accurate to say that Putin set out to make Russia great again, and what he's actually done is make NATO great again. Yeah. <laughs> but so again, the idea that what takes place in one part of the world does actually resonate or reverberate in others is also very important. And we should remember that as we debate continued support for Ukraine because that does have implications for the Indo-Pacific, which is the most important theater and relationship in the world, uh, and where we have to be in absolutely certain that there's no question about our capabilities or our willingness to employ them, as those are the foundation pieces for deterrence. To your point, and I think I'm paraphrasing when I say this, but when Hitler was asked you know, why he thought he could commit genocide against the Jews, he said, well, who remembers the Armenian genocide? which the world did not take angst with that. And therefore, he thought if they could pull that off in, in Turkey, why can't I pull this off in Germany, to your point? And also, the other thing about your point on Asia, it is the fastest growing population in the world to be, you know, call a spade a spade. So that's the other part. It's going to be the biggest group of uh, people. We're investors, General Petraeus. You work for an investment firm. So one idea I just wanted to ask you quickly was, you know, you know in your work uh, at KKR or you personally, what, what are the, some of the most in, in interesting investment things you see out there today? Well, first of all, I just note that geopolitics is vastly more important during the investment process, during diligence, than it was 10 years sure. ago. I agree. Oh, absolutely. The world has evolved from uh, what might have been described as benign globalization to one of renewed great power rivalries. And again, the geopolitical component of risk analysis during the diligence process has become vastly more important uh, over the course of the past 10 years or so. But within that, you see lots of different trends What, where in some cases it is near shoring, there's friend shoring, there is a need to diversify the locations of manufacturing and assembly. Uh, there are rising labor costs in certain areas that 
lead to opportunities in other areas. There's the rise of the robots. There's the weaponization of everything, which also has as its corollary, the security of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, there's no shortage of these different developments in recent years in particular, especially with the pandemic, where we also found that just-in-time logistics has to give way to just-in-case logistics. Yeah. <laughs> but when you play those different themes and trends out, then you start to see where you should be pursuing investments. Fantastic. We, we agree. Um, General Petraeus, thank you for this conversation. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, very yeah. fun. Um, your book makes me think a lot about execution, aligning interests as I thought about the awakening part of your book in Iraq. Also the complexity and unpredictability of the world that requires, to your point from a leadership perspective, immense flexibility, not rigidity. Our listeners should go buy a copy of General Petraeus and Andrew Roberts' book, Conflict Today. It's a great history book and a great book to study leaders like General Petraeus. If you enjoyed this podcast, go to Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to a book with legs. Give us a review, tell others about the books and great authors like General Petraeus that we have the opportunity to understand and study the world with and through. For our tribe, if you have a great book you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeetcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on X. Our handle is at smeetcap. Thank you for joining us for Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.